Well, hi, everybody. I'm Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leeward campus. We're glad you're here. And uh, as Pastor Andrew mentioned, uh, at least AJ versus AC. We have a lot of Andrews around here, in case you're wondering. Um, we are starting a new series this morning, and uh, we are exploring the Gospel of John. And for centuries, the Gospel of John has been one of the most beloved books in all of the New Testament. But why is it? It's often called the Beloved Gospel. Well, it was written by one of Jesus' or perhaps most close earthly friends. And because of that, John gives us a unique snapshot of Jesus up close and personal. That's the literary lens he straps on his brilliant writing. So in the next eight weeks, uh, Lord willing, we're going to explore encounters Jesus has with a wide range of people, people just like you and me, people who struggled with all kinds of things, with their immense brokenness in their worlds, their deepest longings of their heart the most agonizing pains, and the most pressing questions in their lives. So in this exploration, we are going to observe, I think, with hopefully new eyes, how Jesus interacted with people, and how Jesus listened to them, and how he helped them see he was the answer to their brokenness, the deepest questions of their heart, the deepest fears and pains of their life. It's our hope as we begin this series in the next few weeks that we're going to learn more about who Jesus is. But not only that, we are going to learn how Jesus interacted with others, how he loved others, how he interacted with them, how he listened to them, and hopefully, with God's grace at the end of this series, and I hope you'll join us, that we might more lovingly and winsomely point others to the one who makes it possible for them to flourish. So before we open God's word this morning, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us, that wherever we are in our spiritual journey of faith, that you would breathe the fresh breezes of eternity once again in our heart with grace and truth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I travel, which I seem to do quite a bit these days, I find myself as an introvert even then uh, in some interesting conversations with people. Uh, I had one of those this week uh, that was unusual for me. Uh, The young man that picked me up at the Louisville airport Uh, I noticed didn't speak English perfectly, did quite well. His name was Nicholas, and I recognized he wasn't from the United States. So I asked him a couple questions, and it didn't take long for him in very good English to ask me the dreaded question of a pastor. Sir, what do you do? Usually it's sir, because I'm older. I don't know why. I'm a lot of sirs these days. I don't know why. Uh, and let me just tell you, that's, that's the most dreaded question. You know, it's not the question, is there a God or something like that. You know? The dreaded question for a pastor, especially on the road, is uh, what do you do? And you know, pastoral protocol is you're not supposed to lie as a pastor, right? <laughs> and pray for me, because this is one of my greatest temptations on the road, because I want to say, you know, I'm a life coach or a writer or you know, something else, but I usually get pastor out. And, Sometimes people get really awkward around that. Sometimes it gets really chilly in the car. Uh, Sometimes it's the sports or weather that we talk about. But Nicholas responded to my question as I kind of, you know, forced pastor out there uh, rather interestingly. It prompted him to tell me his story. And Nicholas grew up in Germany. Uh, He described himself coming to the United States as a foreign exchange student with a family in Mankato, Minnesota. So we struck up a little conversation since that's where God lives, near where I live. Um, (laughs) And uh, he said that, uh, you know, when I came to the United States, I was a confirmed and satisfied atheist. 
But I lived with this Christian family, and when I left my foreign exchange experience in the United States, he said, I became a skeptical theist, thinking Jesus maybe was a good moral teacher because of his influence on our country, this particular country. He said, I returned to Germany, and it wasn't long where I reconnected with an older friend that I had for many years growing up, and I noticed this tiny little cross around his neck. And that piqued my curiosity. Something was different about my friend. Uh, how he lived, how he talked, and it prompted lots of questions late into the night. And soon, my friend invited me to a Bible study of all things. He kind of chuckled, and then later to church. And then with this big smile on his face, this very bright, young, 21st century German student said to me, I became a true Christian. And six years later, Nicholas is attending seminary. That's why he's driving this car, you know. And as I listened to his story... There was one word that just kept popping up in the conversation. It was the word surprising. He was absolutely surprised who Jesus really was. He was absolutely surprised why Jesus mattered. That is, to a bright and very skeptical 21st century German student who Jesus took by surprise. So wherever we find ourselves in our spiritual journey... I doubt that the very first word we think of when we think of Jesus is the word surprising. Right? I mean, if I were to ask you who Jesus is, I don't think surprising would pop up. But may I suggest to you that perhaps that is the best way to describe Jesus. He may very well be surprising. Because as we see in the story this morning, wow. (laughs) Jesus is seldom what we initially think, but he's more than we could ever imagine. And I want you to turn with me to the text we read earlier, John's Gospel, chapter 1. If you have your Bible, electronic or paper, um, I hope you'll bring it and follow along in this amazing book. Now, as we enter John's literary stage, John is different than the rest of the three other Gospels. Unlike the other Gospels, he writes later in the first century, and he doesn't give us Jesus' historical backdrop. His birth is early years, so it's rather different. Instead, John places Jesus' story against the echoing of Genesis chapter 1. It's all over the first part of John. And that is Jesus' eternal reality as creator. And he describes then, as chapter 1 begins to scoot quickly, as Jesus' incarnate visit to this sin-ravaged planet. Set against the literary prologue, John quickly and swiftly picks up Jesus' earthly life. After Jesus leaves, this carpentry shop he had spent almost up to the age of 30, often called by scholars the hidden years. And John focuses on, right away, in chapter 1, the inauguration of Rabbi Jesus' public ministry as an itinerant rabbi and the calling of his disciples. So in our text this morning, we're going to find three surprising insights where Jesus surprises us. The first surprising insight greets us right at the beginning of the story in verses 43 through 45. I'd like to read this as we enter into it. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He finds Philip and says to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. It means the fishing village. The city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, right away, as a good storyteller, we are introduced to the three main characters of the story. We have Jesus, we have Philip, and we have Nathaniel. Now, as we look at chapter 1, we know that Rabbi Jesus is already called 
Andrew and Peter as his disciples. Now, again, Andrew, Peter, and uh, uh, John tells us Philip are all from the same town, which is fascinating to me in this network. And Peter's the next one to be found and then called by Jesus. But what surprises us is that Jesus has a radical approach as a rabbi in this day. And because of our cultural distance and location, we might not see that in the English text. Because rabbis in the first century, Jewish rabbis, didn't go out recruiting students. Students came to them for an interview to be a prospective student to sit under their brilliance and their teaching. So Jesus, right away, is a radically different rabbi. He seeks out who he wants to train. This is why it's not surprising to John's first century listeners but often to us because of our cultural distance, that Philip would have been immediately saying, yep, I'm in. You wonder why that is in the Gospels? Jesus, follow me, and they go, yeah, I'm in. Why? Let's put it in our context just a little bit. Maybe you have recently been looking for a job. That's a challenging thing, isn't it? And you're trying to get this great job. Or maybe it's looking at a great college and... Perhaps it's also seeking to get a position on your sports team in high school or whatever it might be, and you work hard on your athletic skills, you hone your resume exactly right, you do all your networking for the big job interview. But imagine, without even doing that, the coach came up to you and said, I want you to start Friday night on the team. You'd say what? Let's go, coach, I'm in. You'd be surprised. Or... The admission officer officer of a prestigious elite college comes up to you without even applying. Says, we got a full ride for you. Will you join us? You're like, I like this gig. Immediately. Yeah, I'm in. Or the executive at a company that you wanted to work for a long time came up to you and said, we got a job for you. When can you start? You go, right now. I'm in. See, this is what is going on in the text. Philip cannot believe on the opportunity of a lifetime, this little guy from Bethsaida, that this rabbi who is gaining national renown is inviting him. It's like he won the lottery. You got it? That's the picture. Now, let's face it. If we got a dream job or got into the college of our dreams or got that position on the athletic team, what would we do first? We might shoot up a prayer Thanksgiving. We're really religious. Well, we'd tell our best friends, right? I mean, we'd text, we'd tweet, we'd do everything to let everybody know. And this is what Philip does to Nathaniel. He finds Nathaniel, and Nathaniel, by implication, is a very good friend of his. And he blurts out the most amazing news. We found him. Don't you love that? You notice the pronoun shift? (laughs) There's something fun about this because John already told us that, well, who found who? How does that work? We? I love that. Jesus specifically found Philip, right? It was Philip, after being found by Jesus, who goes finds Nathaniel. But Philip's really pumped. And we see the surprising truth that Jesus finds us to find others. If we've been found by Jesus, if we have experienced the transforming power of the gospel in your life and mine, then one of the greatest joys we have is telling others the good news. We always share with others what we're most jazzed about and excited about. You ever met someone who's engaged, particularly ladies who are engaged, and they don't want to tell you right away, but they go like this. 
You know, their sparkling ring, you know, and if you miss it, you're like a numbskull. I've done that before. But you cannot, you know, ladies, you cannot not tell your friends and show them your diamond. You've got engaged. That's big news. Or, you know, I haven't been blessed this way yet, but you get the news um, that you're a grandpa or grandma. Man, you just tell everybody, hey. Right? Or a victory of a team that you're supporting. Or a great movie or a book you saw, you like, wow. Or the coolest app you have downloaded. It's not surprising that Jesus' last recorded words to us in the Bible in the book of Acts chapter 1 encourages us to tell the good news of the gospel to others, to be his witnesses. But sometimes we have kind of strange ideas of what that means. You know, I've mentioned this publication. It's a rather interesting one. It's called The Onion. It's a satirical piece that often captures our culture, and I thought this piece recently was really awesome. It's entitled, Street Evangelist Saves 300 Souls from Enjoying the Park. (laughs) Here's Brother Sam uh, that they describe, and this is how they describe him in San Francisco. Uh, This is, uh, again, meant to be humorous and satirical, okay? So um, this is is how it goes in in the article. Here he is. Hilson rescued more than 300 of God's children from appreciating a cloudless spring day at Golden State or Golden Gate Park Tuesday by informing them of their sins and the swift approach of Judgment Day. For nearly five years, his highly personalized, one-on-one style of lay sermonizing has been the most effective in the city. As virtually all park goers within Hilson's range of vision are delivered from their conversations or their badminton games within minutes. And it goes on to this. And I, my, my point is simply not to speak inappropriately of a street evangelist. I think there's a place for that. But being found by Jesus to find others may look a little different than this for most of us. And yet I think many of us who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior, if you've done that and you are here today, we do want to be like Philip, don't we? There's something really joyful about telling our neighbors and friends and families and colleagues at work what good news that we've embraced. But we struggle, don't we, to being fearful? I do, or knowing what to say or how to say or some big question we can't answer. But let's just say when, when it comes to sharing our faith, I think we've made it much too complicated. Being a witness to Jesus is simply telling how Jesus has transformed your life and what this gospel story is. So let me suggest three reminders for us to tuck into our hearts and minds that Jesus finds us to find others. Three things will help us. First is this. First, engage with others in respectful conversation. That may seem like common sense. Sharing our faith in Christ is not about having a perfect, crafted monologue. It is rather having a thoughtful dialogue with someone else. Secondly, listen well and love well. My mom used to say, and it's one of my mom memories that stays with me, she said, Tommy, because I had a big potty mouth, I talked way too much. She'd say when I was a kid, son, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Don't forget it, ever. I think that's really good. You'll notice in John's gospel, and we're going to discover this in each message, how well Jesus listened to people, how always fully present he was with them, and how 
he often asks questions rather than give simplistic answers. It's amazing to me. See, we don't have to have the omniscience Jesus has, <laughs> thankfully. But we can grow in being very attentive to those around us that God has placed in our life, our friends, at school, our neighbors, our coworkers around us. We can be attentive and listen carefully in their verbal and nonverbal communication to their heart longings. The uniqueness of their past hurts, the hopes they long for, their aspirations to the deep questions they are wrestling with in life. And then ask yourself simply, how would Jesus address those longings? How has Jesus addressed that? See, are you living, am I living too of a hurried, distracted, multitasking life that we are not fully present with others who God places in our life? Third, be bold, but not bruising, okay? In sharing our faith, words are important to say. Good news needs to be announced verbally, yes. We are called to both live the gospel and speak it, but our words, however true, can be hurtful if not shared with the right heart attitude or with the respect of the person we are having a conversation with. Yes, the gospel message itself can be offensive, But often a rejection of the good news of the gospel is not because of the message. It's us as the messenger conveying it. In our story, Philip is from the same small town as Nathaniel. And this is important to understand because Philip doesn't just go grab Nathaniel. He has a relationship with him. He has equity with him. And Philip is bold with his friends as true friends are. And let's face it, this bold truth claim is stunning, isn't it? (laughs) Philip doesn't hem and haw around with this Jesus dude. I mean, he just says it. Wow. Philip is not just declaring to his friend that the local Bethesda chapter of Chipotle has a brand new kosher burrito, right? I mean, it's not at that level. His language is, these are the most stunning truth claims. We have found him. This is the most earth-shattering truth, I'm telling you. It's the most history-arresting truth. It is Jesus, the Messiah, has come in the flesh. That is a bold truth claim in the first century and the 21st century. So Philip doesn't hem-haw around it, and neither should we, because Jesus finds us to find others. Have you been found by Jesus? If so, Nathaniel's are all around you. In their insightful book, Art of Neighboring, Jay Patak and Dave Runyon encourage us, I think, to know more deeply those around us. And I love how they make this distinction between ulterior and ultimate motives, between ulterior and ultimate motives. Listen to what they say. Ulterior is deceptive and hidden. For example, I'm going to be nice to you now so that I can tell you about Jesus later. Whereas the ultimate motivation is to love our neighbors so much that we aren't satisfied with mere acts of kindness, but always and honestly communicate that we hope Jesus will one day be their Lord and Savior. On your chair this morning, we placed just a reminder for all of us. The star is you, okay? That's you. And God has placed, it's like tic-tac-toe here, huh? Uh, God has placed you in the middle. And what we want to encourage you to do is this today, maybe today, Think of the people in your workplace and home and your athletic team, family, neighbors, that 
maybe don't know Christ. And put their names in there just for you and God and pray for them this week. We believe that God has placed us around to share the good news with others. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian yet, I'm so glad you're here. And I think this gospel expiration of John is just perfect for where you are. And I trust that in the weeks ahead, you will grasp more who this Jesus is, who is surprising. And Jesus will say in John, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we believe at Christ's community that an honest pursuit of the truth will eventually lead you to Jesus. Now John continues our story, and it takes a surprising twist. Most good stories do, don't they? I don't know what kind of response Philip was expecting from his friend Nathaniel, but this wasn't it. Look at me at verse 46. Nathaniel basically says to him, Jesus of Nazareth? Ha! Huh. You have got to be kidding me. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Let's put it in our context, okay? Some of you, I know, I mean, I know you're all too spiritual for this, but some of you say that about Columbia, Missouri. Can anything good come out of Columbia? And some of you say that about Lawrence, Kansas, right? Can anything good come out of Lawrence, Kansas? Or Manhattan, Kansas? This is kind of the idea here, okay? There's a bit more, but there's a deep cultural bias from one town to the other. Nazareth was Podunkville. And Nathaniel, Nathaniel means God, the gift. Nathaniel knew his old, at least the Torah, he knew the Old Testament, good part of it. And he knew there was no mention of Nazareth in King David's line of the Messiah. So he's going, eh, this doesn't compute. Ignorant, non-sophisticated, backwater people, Nazareth's not a part of the story. Oh, yeah? Philip, don't you just love Philip here? I mean, it's me, I would just sort of bring out my apologetics and defend all this or be defensive or obnoxious, unfortunately. Philip is not defensive at all. Do you see it? There's not even a hint of it, not a sniff. He doesn't argue with Nathaniel. He simply invites him. Basically, what he says in the text is, before you smugly dismiss this Jesus guy, you come and see him for yourself. And this is the second surprising insight of this text. We're not only found to be found, found to, be, to find others. Jesus is seen. He's not sold. Uh-uh. None of us like to be viewed as an ignorant, backwater, non-sophisticated people who are religious. From Podunkville. Pastor Tim Keller rightly reminds us that Christianity was from Nazareth in the first century, and it's still from Nazareth now. Some of us may respond to the skepticism of our friends like, what backwater people, backwater Christian faith. And we may be tempted to sort of pull out our best sell <laughs> out of in defensiveness or insecurity, give a sales pitch. But Jesus doesn't need to be sold. He sells himself brilliantly. Philip reminds us here that in finding others, Jesus is someone we simply show through our words and our life. Maybe you're here today. I hear this often in conversations with people. And you've had a disillusioning experience of someone trying to sell you Jesus in an insensitive way. But please, please, don't let that experience be an obstacle for you to take a closer look at Jesus. And maybe you were taught 
in college or graduate school by very bright professors that the Christian faith is a backwater faith untenable to the modern or postmodern education person. Now, I may be tempted to challenge you on that, to persuade you of its intellectual depth and coherence. But the Christian faith pushes back both against mindless faith and mindless doubt. So let me encourage you to take a closer look at Jesus for yourself. And my hunch is Jesus will surprise you. Because Jesus is seldom what we think, but he's more than we could ever imagine. And this was Nathaniel's experience in verse 47. Do you notice? John tells us at the urging of his friend, Nathaniel takes the hike and goes to see Jesus. And Jesus gives Nathaniel one of the greatest compliments in all of the New Testament when he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom literally there is no guile. What that says to me is Jesus is not threatened by skeptics. He loves them dearly. And we should too. And Nathaniel, you know, there's just a lot going on in this text that surprises us. We have questions. Nathaniel looks at Jesus with this surprise and credulity. God, how do you know me? What Jesus says next shatters Nathaniel's guarded skepticism. He says, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Oh my, what is this fig tree? Scholars wrestle with this. There's interpretive maps all over the place. But what I know he's not saying, he's not saying something incidental like, hey, I saw you having a latte at Starbucks the other day. That's not what the text is saying. Under the fig tree, my best guess on this, by Nathaniel's response, is it is a loaded phrase. Rabbis used it throughout certain periods of Israel's history to describe the fig tree was a private space of meditation and prayer where our most intimate thoughts and emotions surfaced before a holy God. So there's something deeply connected to his emotional intimacy or who he is at the depth of his being or what he has done. John, again, is probably being delicate in how he frames this conversation. We just don't know. But we do know that Jesus exposes Nathaniel's heart right before him. As Jesus does. And Jesus has the password, and he's reading Nathan's most private email at that moment. And Nathaniel knew that this rabbi had immediate disposal, at his disposal, all knowledge including the most intimate knowledge of every human life. That's why he just comes out of his skin, moving from entrenched skepticism to exuberant faith. And he blurts out, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responds, you know the story. It's just brilliant. He responds, Nathaniel, gift of God is what his mom named him. He says, you're a gift of God, but you ain't seen nothing yet. That's exactly what he does. He connects it to a story in the Old Testament. Remember, Jacob was the leader of Israel. He, he becomes the name of Israel, the 12 tribes. And his language of ascending and descending, you look how it ends, you go, what is that? Right? I mean, it's like, what is that? But he's connecting it to the story of Genesis 28. When Jacob, in a dream, hears God say, as the angels ascend and descend on this ladder, remember Jacob's ladder? That song? We are climbing Jacob's ladder. I won't sing, I promise. But at the end of that account, what's important here in this text is that God says to Jacob, I'm going to bless you and all the world is going to be blessed through you. That's a pretty powerful thing. And Jesus is saying, remember what God (laughs) said to Jacob? You ain't seen nothing yet. I am the answer to every longing. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the Messiah. 
In this story, there are remarkable insights how Jesus surprises us. Do you see it? Jesus first surprises us by finding us to find others. Jesus surprises us that he is seen and not sold. And notice at the end, Jesus can be rejected but not ignored. That's the third insight. Now, whatever we initially think about Jesus of Nazareth, he arguably is the most important and influential person in human history. There's no question about that for the objective person. And John writes his gospel to a skeptical first century world, as skeptical as ours. Skepticism is not new. It's part of the human fabric. John's entire gospel we'll see through this series is directed toward one end, and that is that you and I can reject Jesus, but we simply cannot ignore him. He's too massive, too great, too good, too awesome. He is the intersection that all of us come to in life. He stands there with his arms spread out on the cross in his glorious resurrection power. John writes at the end of his gospel, and he's the only gospel writer who gives explicitly his purpose for writing, so we know it. In John 20, 31, he says, these are written, I've included these stories. There's so much the world cannot contain it, but I've included these stories. This story, for example, of Nathaniel, Nathaniel and Philip. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. What that means in our language is that in faith, in Jesus' completed, sacrificial, atoning work on the cross, in his glorious resurrection, in his person and his work, you and I, when we trust him by faith, can flourish both now and forever, for all eternity. Jesus said, I came to give you life. Me life. The deepest longings of our heart, the life we long to live, is found in Jesus. That's what John says. Now, why do people reject Jesus? I think there are many reasons. Sometimes people have not investigated carefully the claims of Christ and dismiss him as intellectually flawed or bankrupt. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes people reject Jesus out of their own personal pride that they don't need anyone, right? But I find in my conversations that most of the time people reject Jesus because of the moral and sexual ethic Jesus calls us to embrace. And the lifestyle he calls us. Like Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. I don't know where you are this morning. But I'm simply asking you whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time or you're checking Christ out or Christianity or the church out again. Will you be honest? Will you be honest where you are? Will you be honest with Jesus? Are you seeking the truth or are you hiding from it when it comes to your door? Honest skepticism is not an impediment to life-changing faith. We see this in Nathaniel's life. Jesus affirms Nathaniel. But we also see in the story, it's an amazing opportunity for life-transforming faith. Faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
as John says in the introduction chapter, who takes away the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. The greatest human problem we have is sin. I was with a group of economists this week and PhDs by the glory. One of the things kept coming up, the uniqueness of the Christian story to deal with the most fundamental problem that economics, you just name the list of disciplines, cannot deal with, and it's the deepest sin problem of the human heart. Your greatest problem, my greatest problem, is the sinfulness of my heart and your heart. Only Jesus can address that and give you a new heart. Only he can. A heart that will influence your marriage, your relationships, your work, how you see the world, how you love others. So will you take a closer look at Jesus? From our story this morning, I don't want you to miss that you can be assured that Jesus, he knows you better than you know yourself. And Jesus loves you more than you can ever fathom. And Jesus wants the very best for you. So in the midst of your questions, in the midst of skepticism and doubt, are you willing to let Jesus take you by surprise? Jesus is seldom what we initially think, but he is more than we could ever imagine. Stephen Huggins expresses this beautifully as a newer member of Christ's community, a person who wrestles deeply with skepticism, and he shares how Jesus has recently surprised him. Watch. My name is Stephen Huggins. Uh, I'm a patent attorney with Hovey Williams, which is an intellectual property uh, law boutique firm here in Overland Park. I've always sought to have a relationship with God and, and to understand the Bible and to be around Christian communities and, and individuals. But there has always been that skepticism that developed early on and, and stayed with me that kind of, I think, enabled me to maintain sort of a safe distance from a pure faith. It provided a bit of a cushion to me, a, a, a reason for me to delay a full commitment. It was an, enable, it was an enabler, essentially, to, um, for, for my continued lifestyle and, and continued um, holding of religion at arm's length and faith at arm's length. And so this brings us to a service that I attended here at Christ Community about, I would say, four months ago. I had been praying about, you know, uh, my struggles with faith and asking Jesus to to show me, to, to walk with me, walk more closely, to at least help me struggle with my skepticisms and doubts and the answer that I arrived at was that doubt and skepticism doesn't have to keep me from my faith that I've wanted it, it in fact it shouldn't and ultimately I think there will always be questions that will go unanswered about the Bible it's it may be the perfect word, but I'm not the perfect reader. And that means there will always be things I won't fully understand. 
but it didn't hit home until that service and something just changed and something happened and, and I was able to think of my doubts and skepticisms as opportunities to grow in my relationship and walking with Christ and it was it was pivotal I it's hard to describe the sort of cascade of realizations that this that this brought to me and it was it was an amazing experience that that I hope I always remember in the end we are all left with a basic a very basic question and that is do we you know are we something more than meat on bone on a planet spinning in a solar system in a galaxy in a universe and my answer to that has always been yes we are something more Jesus to me is the embodiment of that something more hope and love and a purity that goes beyond what what we currently know and have ever known and obviously what comes from that after we die is joy at reunion with him